When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's Hello and welcome to the Celtics Reddit Podcast. Ben Vallis here. Thank you for joining us. I hope you're doing well. Coming up, NBA Salary Cap for Idiots. That's a working title. This is a safe space where you can freely admit that you don't really know what the tax apron is, the biannual exception, the superannuational tax levy. See, that's not even a real thing. I just made that up. Joining us for this absolute nerd fest, Jay, aka Celtics Jay. How you doing, sir? I'm doing well. I'm ready to hold Spoons accountable for not talking down to the folks with his fancy salary cap spiel. <laughs> well, you're looking, you're looking very much the part, so you're looking very, very fly there. I you know, as yeah, the we're talking money. I got to look money, right? Come on. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and of course, the NBA CBA Oracle, at least for this evening, Wayne Spoonie. Welcome back, sir. How's things? Things are good. I feel that we might be entering a blind leading the blind situation here. Uh, <laughs> no really one will know. For, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to getting some small minutia wrong and getting roasted on the internet for it. So that should be a lot of fun. Uh, that's, the, that's the internet for you. That's um, right. So here's how this is going to work. The goal is to gain a better understanding of the very complex NBA salary cap actually known as the Collective Bargaining Agreement. We've got some great comments here from the people of Celtics Reddit, and I'm sure between Jay and myself, some questions of our own. Uh, Wayne Spoonie has a better handle on the CBA than most, so he's going to be our salary cap Sherpa, for lack of a better term. Guys, any extra context setting or anything you want to do before we get into it? Nope. Pray That's for fine. me. <laughs> pray, <laughs> pray for spoons. <laughs> All right, Celtics Jay, you want to kick us off? Yeah, so I think the best way to start this thing off is I actually one of the one of the commenters in the sub photosensitive 44 asked the question, why fans of basketball care about the collective bargaining agreement? It's like they rather pretend to be GMs than watch basketball being played. And I think it's a it's a fair point to bring up here. Why are we so infatuated and in love with tearing these numbers apart and overanalyzing and critiquing and criticizing all of these contracts when there's a game that just has to get played out there. How is this stuff even relevant to enjoying this as a fan? Yeah, so I think there's uh, quite a few reasons. One, I think if you just want to be a knowledgeable fan and you want to know what to expect, you have to at least have some basic understanding of the CBA and the salary cap. Otherwise, you know, it's like the Twitter comments that are like, why didn't we sign that guy who's making $30 million this year when we have absolutely no opportunity? And plus, I just think the NBA salary cap is really unique in that it's bizarre. There's got all sorts of goofy rules. And unlike most leagues, almost the whole league operates over the tax. So in order to construct trades, we'll talk or over the uh, salary cap. So in order to construct trades... There's uh, some rules that almost make it like working a puzzle, right? It's kind of fun to figure out like, oh, if I want to acquire this guy, which salaries do I have to include? And then maybe I'll, ooh, we need to get a third team involved. So I think there's a lot of that. It's almost like a game for a lot of people, um, myself included, when you're looking at how, you know, when you're just being a fan, you're thinking about what your team can do and cannot do. Uh, and the CBA plays a huge part in that especially in the NBA. 
All right, yeah. so all I hear is if you were in math club in high school and <laughs> they don't meet anymore since graduation, this is a way to get involved in a community of people, uh, you know, gather around the NBA discussion table and talk all of these finances and put together these algebraic and mathematical puzzles. <laughs> gotcha. It's, yep, yeah, I'm it's totally a- in. It's a way to feel superior. That's really what I use it for. <laughs> okay. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. And and yet this this nerdy I nerdy I use as a as a lack of a better term, this sort of more mathematical approach to the game is it's becoming cool. And you know, jocks like me and yourself, Celtics J, we need to we need to brush up on this kind of stuff <laughs> so that we can hang with the big kids, the Wayne Spoonies of the world. So uh just sticking with that, I, I'm very guilty of using the term NBA salary cap to refer to the the whole thing but really it's the collective bargaining bargaining agreement spoons i think it's probably a good place to start here just by giving the listeners out there a sort of a broader sense of what the cba is and and what it means and then we can drill down into the finer details yeah so i will i'll move through this pretty quick because of a boring topic this is probably the most boring piece of it Uh, (laughs) it really a collective bargaining agreement is a negotiated agreement between a union and their employers. And what that does is set the terms and conditions of your employment. And that is everything from breaks to pay to benefits are all going to be contained in your collective bargaining agreement. And it's actually governed by the National Labor Relations Act, federal law, blah, blah, blah. As I said, this is all very dry and boring. But the NBA (laughs) CBA is pretty unique in that one, it's kind of fun, right? Because it's established as framework that we follow closely for NBA teams. Uh, but also, unlike, you know, your uh, Stevedore's union, uh, the NBA players very much have a vested interest in the NBA continuing to be successful and making money. And that's because of something called basketball-related income. And right now, uh, the players and the owners split basketball-related income 50-50. And that includes, like, Everything you can basically imagine, apparently the definition is 35 pages long, defining all the different things that constitute basketball-related income. I mean, it's jersey sales, ticket sales, concession sales, when they sell, like, you know, the stupid little ads that hang up there, or like, this is the Ford replay, you know, built Ford tough. That's all goes into basketball-related income, and probably most importantly, the TV deal goes into basketball-related income. So you'll hear about when the CBA negotiations are going on. The union and the owners will get into these pissing matches about, oh, this shouldn't be included, and this should be. Because if it's not included in the BRI, the owners get to keep it. They don't have to split it with the players. And the amount of the BRI that goes to the players is how much money is available for player salaries and thus sets the salary cap. So that's kind of why it's important to our discussion here. Um, go, so sorry, on one hand, it, it, it's sounding like w- with the salary cap and the collective bargaining agreement, and when you think of it as a whole, it's an opportunity to get a sense into not just sort of how these teams can get pieced together from the perspective of ownership and, and a GM executive team, but also how the, the fans, you know, we can actually look at this from the outside in and get a sense for what stake the players are having in the the value of the league as a whole, right? So, you know, it's demonstrative of the players getting their piece of that collective pie, um, you know, and we're seeing a lot of investment and player participation. I mean, we've got two of our own players participating in that union leadership uh, right now, Jalen Brown and um, Grant 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 Williams. So, you know, as well as obviously being relevant to how these contracts get negotiated and how that affects the salary cap for putting a team together. Um, I think it's also, you know, a really interesting lens that we get access to at this point now that's really sort of out there um, that's reflective of players negotiating and bargaining with their own vested interests in the the health and the st- sustainability and growth of the league. Yeah, and that's a that's a great point, Jay, and it's actually something I think it's going to come up. One thing that I think is going to come up to your point about the players also having this vested interest is player movement and the freedom of movement. So on first glance, you think, why would the players ever want to give up freedom of movement? Well, you know, ratings are really down. 
And if that can be connected to this player movement and building of super teams, the players themselves have a vested interest in not driving fans away with all this movement and these super teams. So you might see something about that in the next CBA to at least limit it somewhat. I think we might see some real creative stuff. The The next CBA, uh, I think it's going to look quite a bit different than our current one. I think another thing we're noticing right now is whereas we've typically seen really dramatic sweeping changes across the league from a player standpoint, the last couple of seasons, we've seen a lot more of that movement at the executive and leadership level for organizations. So I think where we saw some of the, I think it'll get referred to as symptoms of the last collective bargaining agreement, which was players having more uh, freedom to, you know, end up where they want to be and, and create these super teams. At the same time, it's put pressure on these organizations to be more player focused, more community enrichment, um, really developing a culture within that team that's supportive uh, and competitive. Right. And I think that that's ultimately only going to be good for the league. Um, now, is it the perfect situation? No, I don't necessarily know what is, but I have really liked seeing organizations have to make tough decisions at those higher levels without just scapegoating players. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. From the fan perspective, you almost hope that as Tatum and Brown's contracts draw to their conclusion, that there is a pendulum swing back in the other direction. Like, yes, the the empowerment of players, like you said there, Jay, with organizations getting behind their players and helping them become more active and charitable in the community is great. But from the fan perspective, there is this sense of dread that like how invested yes. should I how emotionally invested should I become in these guys when they might be gone in a few years and then further to your point spoons like should I buy season tickets should I buy a jersey which all can you know contributes back to that basketball related income um, it's difficult here like we've got a lot of a lot of reddit comments to get to and it's sort of difficult to identify the proper entry point like where do we start with all of these comments but I guess on the player retention side of things there's a comment here from fly tanks who says why the difference between I guess they ask this, why the difference between Supermax and Max contracts is counted against the cap. It's supposed to help a team keep their player, but it just makes it harder to build a team overall. Yeah, and I think, ultimately, I think the Supermax is something that will change because I think that Fly Tanks is really striking on a point, right? This was created to incentivize guys to stay with the team that drafted them. And what it's done is just essentially handicap those teams from building competitive teams. So those guys want out even quicker. Uh, and we, we saw it with AD, uh, especially is probably the most famous example. And it's exactly those types of things that we'll see negotiated and, and maybe changed in the next CBA. All right. And, and second with fly tanks and they've hit, they've hit on um, what I wanted to talk about next related to the cap. And that is the actual salary cap itself. Uh, and like I said at the top, the NBA is unique in that it has a soft salary cap. And that kind of means it's a little bit meaningless. Uh, but right now, there's really three numbers that you have to know if you want to understand the salary cap. So a soft cap means you can go above it. And almost every team in the NBA functions above the salary cap. So you have a certain amount of transactions available to you if you are under the cap and a certain different amount of transactions that are available to you if you are over the cap. Spoons, I want to try to focus us real quick because um, I think Tice159 in the sub asked the question, when is a team's cap impact taken into account? Like, can we go into the season above the tax and then trade at the deadline to below the tax and vice versa? So when, when you're talking about that soft cap, hard cap, how does that affect our flexibility at the different points in the season at what point do we need to be at a certain threshold to maintain that that key word that flexibility yeah brad steven's favorite word uh <laughs> so essentially there's there's three numbers you need to know uh the cap which is going to be 112 million the tax line 136 and a half million and then the tax apron which is 143 million and that is the quote unquote hard cap that we heard so much about last off season and nothing about this this off season uh that's because that hard cap number does not matter unless you do a certain type of transaction and I'll talk about that a little bit later um but 
for calculating what your salary cap is and whether you are over that 112 or that 136 tax line. That is done actually at the end of the season. So you, you'll you know we have that week-long moratorium. That's actually when the NBA's why that moratorium exists is so the NBA's accountants can audit all the teams and the league and come up with the final number. So okay, so that's we that's act- like the time when at work everyone at work is like all stressed out and everyone's looking exactly. to get all the receipts in. Right, yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm usually getting a lot of corrective action warnings around that time of the the work year. Okay, You're right, exactly, exactly. So we are actually almost exactly one. Juancho Hernan Gomez over that tax line, that 136.6 million. So if we can find a team like, I don't know, say in Oklahoma City, to take him, <laughs> uh, a team that is under the cap to take him so they don't have to send us any salary back, uh, we can actually sneak under the tax line before the trade deadline and we'll be good. We won't be a tax paying team this year. Um, and so, sorry, go ahead, Ben. Well, so I just want to get a better understanding of why we would do that. Like, obviously, there is a tax bill if we stay over the tax line, but we're owned by a conglomerate of, of billionaires or, you know, um, if you aggregate all of their, their salaries, they're a collective billionaire. Why is it so important that we get under that tax line before the end of the season? So ultimately, uh, paying the tax for one year is not a big deal. It's like dollar for dollar. You know, if you're six million over, the owners have to write a check for another six million dollars. And to your point, as a global conglomerate, that's chump change, right? What the problem is, is our best friend, the repeater tax. And the repeater tax hits you if you have paid the luxury tax three out of the last four years. So you'll go back to last summer or actually during this season, rather uh, at the trade deadline, everyone was talking about, we got to get under the tax. We got to get under the tax. And that was to reset the repeater tax, which meant that we'd be a non-tax team two years in a row. So we can be a tax team three of the next four years and not be a repeater team, uh, which is important because that's closer to Tatum and Brown's primes. Sure. Uh, And the repeater tax, unlike the normal uh, luxury tax is very, very punitive. The Warriors are kind of the famous example for a straight YOLO. We'll pay <laughs> as much as we want. Uh, they ended up having to cut a check for $80 million for Kelly Oubre last season because they were so deep into the repeater tax. <laughs> so uh, I know that they're a global conglomerate, but writing $80 million checks is not a good way to stay as a, a billionaire, uh, especially for Kelly Oubre. <laughs> so it's really not about paying the tax for one year. It's the implications that when we want to be a contender, we don't want to be so deep in the repeater tax. We have to cut talent around Tatum and Brown when they're in their prime. Yeah, and so uh, Daniel Tice, I believe, was our sacrificial lamb in this case in terms of getting under the, the tax line, correct? Indeed he was. Okay. <laughs> Jay, you got any follow-up questions there? I'm still mulling on uh, the, the sacrificing of Daniel Tice. I hope Fongos isn't listening. What a, what a terrible reality to, to have to deal with. Very confronting. We're going to hear from him. <laughs> so... Help me just understand then, because, you know, we've touched on the idea of this soft and this hard cap. At what point can we just simply not have any more salary? So, like, what is that hard cap number? I, I know you gave it, but give it to me one more time real quick and just help me understand. Again, that soft cap you said is at the beginning of the season. Hard cap is what we get sort of assessed on or audited on at the end of the season. Not not quite. So the hard cap actually That's his gentle affect- way of saying I'm the idiot. Okay. <laughs> the hard cap no, of course not, Jay. Uh, <laughs> look, look at that blazer, man. Uh, so the hard cap actually does not affect every team. Uh and it's not affecting the Celtics currently. So that's the tax line. Um when you're over the tax line is when you get assessed the taxes at the end of the year, uh during the moratorium. So The hard cap, a.k.a. the tax apron, only hits you if you do certain things. And that line is much like the NFL or the NHL salary caps in that if you you initiate the hard cap through a certain type of transaction, you cannot go above that number, period, at all. And you heard Brad talk about, we don't want to do a sign-in trade because we don't want to start the hard cap. We don't want to be hard cap for this next season. So 
you cannot exceed it for the entire year, no matter what. Um, whereas if you're an over the cap team, you can go way over. You could go way past the tax, and you can be like the Warriors and pay eighty million dollars for uh, Kelly Oubre. So, so pros and cons <laughs> to both being under or over. There's ways to sort of capitalize on either end. There's a st- strategy for being successful regardless of where you are currently at that threshold. Let me ask this other question. And I know that this I- I'm, I'm pairing with a fellow user here that asked a question. And you mentioned this term a couple of times now. So user Zaytoven and I both have no idea what you mean when you keep saying tax apron. What what the hell? First of all, I've, I remember having to wear an apron when I worked in kitchens. You keep mentioning it yeah. with regards very, to money, and I'm getting very confused. <laughs> Surely there's a better word uh, in the English language than apron. Like, can you explain, <laughs> in addition to Jay's question, why apron is the applicable term here? Uh, I, I think that was probably a very hard negotiated term in the CBA. <laughs> Clearly someone really, maybe they have an apron company and wanted uh, one of the owners. It's a dude uh, standing in wanted... the corner wearing an apron, just like pointing at himself like, ah, Damn hey. it, call it the apron, not the hard cap. I have no idea. I think it's super confusing, but the apron is the hard cap number. It's the exact same thing. And it's that 143, 143 million. So let me let me take a step back Please. and say, if you're under the cap, the big benefit there is you can sign free agents without worry, right? You got $20 million in cap space. You can say, hey, Evan Fournier's agent, do you want $18 million a year? Yes. Okay. If you are an over-the-cap team, you obviously cannot do that, but... You can, and this is how teams get way, way above even the tax line. You can sign players in certain in certain exceptions or certain ways, and there's a lot of them, right? So I'm just going to kind of walk through these, and we'll get to the reasons why the apron exists. Well, not why it exists, but we'll get to how the apron comes into play, a.k.a. the hard cap comes into play as we go through these, because it is through off-season transactions and off-season acquisitions of players that the hard cap gets instituted. So the main way uh, that you can sign a player is if they're your player. Uh, And that's with, named after our Lord and Savior, Lar Bird, uh, ex-participant in this podcast. It's called (laughs) Bird Rights, right? Uh, And if so if a player's played for you for three years, you have what's called full bird rights and you get those in a trade so we got josh richardson's bird rights when we traded for him and you can sign them for whatever you want right so if we're at 130 million and josh richardson expires while we have bird rights we can say we're giving you the max josh i mean we should fire brad stevens if he does that immediately (laughs) but we could theoretically do it Uh, and that would have us go way into the tax and way past the apron but we haven't triggered the hard cap yet, so we don't care. We can go way past the apron if we want. And there's also this thing called early bird rights. So if a guy's been on the team for two years, you can't give him a max. You can just give him 175 of his previous com- uh, contract. Mm-hmm. So if he's making $10 million, you can give him $17 million. Or you can give him the average salary in the NBA, which is, will be $10 million next year. So that's <laughs> okay. early bird rights. Sure. Uh and then there's the minimum exception. You can always sign a player to a minimum exception uh, depending on their years of service, so how long they've been in the league. That amount changes. So we signed Cantor on the minimum exception this past year. Next, I'm going in ascending order here, is the biannual exception. This the is bay. about three and a half. Yeah, the bay <laughs> is about three and a half million. This triggers the hard cap, so or the AKA the apron. So if you use the biannual exception, again, three and a half million, pretty useless, barely above, you know, Cantor got about 2.7. You trigger the hard cap. You cannot go over 143 for an entire year, right? So say you're at 140 million and your best player is a free agent that you have bird rights on and you stupidly sign, you know, some bum for the BAE. Say bye to your max player who's awesome because you cannot go past that apron number. Right. So if you use your bay, you lose your bay. 
Exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Exactly. Well done. Well done, Jay. Uh, Did you happen to know when the last time the Celtics used the, the bay? I, I don't. I, you know, I, I was surprised they didn't use it last year uh, because we were already hard capped due to the MLE with Tristan Thompson. But mm-hmm. I think we were so close to the tax apron that we couldn't. Uh, right. I'm not sure the last. I know we've used it f- within the last 10 years, but it's pretty rare. Not many teams use it. Um, but similarly to the bay is the mid-level exception. There's actually three types of them because nothing's fucking easy, right? <laughs> uh, there's the taxpayer MLE, which has, you know, as long as you're over the cap, you can use this. Every team has it every year, uh, some type of the MLE. And that's why you'll see all these contracts for similar numbers. Like Patty Mills got uh, $12 million. Dennis Schroeder, $6 million. You know, these are all guys getting signed by what's called the taxpayer MLE, the baby MLE, the mini MLE. And then there's the non-taxpayer MLE, which is a lot bigger. You know, it's roughly nine and a half million. That's what we used on Tristan Thompson. That also hard caps you, institutes the tax apron. And so then you can't exceed that 143 million. From what uh, I understand, Tristan Thompson had a tough time hiding his hard cap under his apron. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll see myself out. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, I mean, Kemba was, it seemed like he was with him a lot, so maybe that's why he, they're both gone, you know? <laughs> this is how rumors get started. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Uh, Moving on. Right and, uh, also, pretty unimportantly, there's a third type of the MLE. It's called the room exception. That's for teams that are under the cap. Um, so that's about 5 million. Once you hit, you have to use up your cap space. So like the Knicks signed all these players with cap space this off season. Now they could use the room exceptions about 5 million. So it's a little less than the taxpayer MLE. Mm-hmm. So with okay. regards to the, these exceptions, we've seen examples of this with, with Cantor, um, in, in years prior, uh, now going back to, 2008 when we had the championship run the example of that mle was james posey if i'm correct yeah yep yeah so and at that time i mean it was significantly less than i mean the dollar went a a bit further then than it does now i suppose but yeah that mle was somewhere around i think it was what three three point two million yeah and it's interesting jay uh that these numbers, and it's something I should have said, it's a great point. These numbers are all affected by what the salary cap number is, which is all affected by that BRI number. So you'll notice that. So like, real quick, let's just unpack that BRI. Let's get those abbreviations out for the, the general. Stop giving us that fancy talk, smart guy. It's the basketball related income. Thank That's you. one to remember for sure. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so these are all percentages or based off what the salary cap is so to your point back in 2008 the salary cap was almost half of what it is now so you'll see a lot of gasps about these new contracts guys are signing and it's like i remember when we paid eddie house four million dollars a year yeah well that's you know eight million dollars now yeah, it's relative a lot to inflation different. so actually let me let me just throw some some clarity on that eddie house during that championship season was only making 1.5 million right um james posey was at 3.2 million uh kendrick perkins was he just signed his extension after his rookie deal and he was at f- just under four and a half million. Uh, Ray Allen was at 16. All right. So think about the people Comically that are making low. like 16 million right now. Uh, Pierce was also at just a little bit above 16. And he had kind of notably taken a little bit of a pay cut to accommodate having other stars in the team. Our highest paid player uh, for that season was Kevin Garnett, who was making 23, uh, 23.7 million that year so just to kind of put into some frame of understanding like our championship team in 2008 our highest paid player was making 23 million a year whereas now you've got guys like chris middleton's making 35 
Right. right? So, you know, I, I think a little later on, we can touch on some of the other contracts that we currently have on the team. But I think looking back at that championship run and noticing the difference between how that inflation looks for different roles on a roster, um, it's just helpful for kind of gauging the value of, of the contracts on the squad. So didn't mean to derail, but just thought that might be some helpful context to add as we consider some of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I have a question. So these these exceptions, these you know, bird rights, they're obviously always uh, forms of maneuverability for teams who are over the cap already. So there's plenty of options there, and you're not necessarily hamstrung if you are over the cap, which probably ap- applies to at least the majority of competitive teams in the league. Um, do these percentages do they remain uh, relative to the to the the BRI level or the, the the overall salary cap. So is the the MLE, for example, as a percentage of the overall salary cap, is that the same ten years ago as it is now or, or thereabouts? Yeah, I believe so. It's all it's all pretty similar. I think the cap has almost exactly doubled from two thousand eight, and the MLE uh, is now about six million. And it would make sense that Posey was on that three point two. Right. Okay. There's a Reddit user Fish who wrote. Let's say you and I go toe-to-toe on bird rights and see who comes out the victor, um, which I really, I guess, is just an invitation for that user to leave a comment in the uh, in this post for this episode and let us know if we if we hit the nail on the head there as far as our descriptions or, or Spoonie's descriptions of all the Mike, exceptions there. Spoons, they want all the smoke. All of it. <laughs> I know, they're coming for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in fairness to that user, it was a reply to a thread that I submitted to Reddit, and they probably know me from maybe listening to a few episodes that I've got no idea what I'm doing. So maybe that's where that, that comment came from. I'm not sure. Oh. <laughs> should, we, should we get to the hard cap and, you know, when does it come into play? I think, first of all, it's really helpful just to, you know, just to, again, reiterate that the hard cap and the apron are the same thing. Like just knowing that those two are the same things and I can consolidate those two terms in my mind is, is very refreshing and, and simplifying of everything. And you can kind of, you can start to, I don't know, uh, yeah, like I said, consolidate your your overall uh, impressions of the salary cap and what it means just by combining those two terms. Um, well, are there and any- maybe to, to feed off of that, it might be, you know, I know President Brad was, uh, user President Brad, not the actual president brad he hasn't yet reached out to us to uh to supply a comment yet <laughs> but user president brad uh kind of also asked a question that i think might help transition into some of these you know the things that you're bringing up as well which is when the lonzo sign and trade hype was going on strong someone brought up base year compensations as a financial roadblock to us getting him or other types of restricted free agents uh user president brad and myself would love to hear more about that in a dumbed down format for again us us common folk um so with regards to navigating the trade market, which of course is you know all the rage in the uh, way that we consider and 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 break down all of the different options that might be available to a team, how do we navigate that cap that cap space and our player contracts to put together a winner with consideration to some of those dynamics that that user president Brad is is asking about? And again, the the highlight of all that was the Lonzo Ball just drama chaos yeah <laughs> it seemed like every every week there was a new theory on how we either could or couldn't uh acquire lonzo ball and right down to the before he signed chicago we were still like maybe we're the third team in this deal somehow yeah, yeah that was a, i actually there was a lot of ahead, like oh yeah we should absolutely sign lonzo and then people chiming in well we definitely can't and then people were replying well technically technically we can and uh <laughs> is partially the partially the motivating factor for this podcast is to get down as to why or why that couldn't happen so uh i was one of those people who said technically we can but we shouldn't <laughs> because it would cost us evan fournier look at me now <laughs> uh so all right, well, let me take a step back. Why the Lonzo situation was so complicated is because it was going to be a sign-and-trade, right? And that essentially means Lonzo's a restricted free agent. That's a special type of free agent that only is someone coming off their first contract in the NBA. Uh, so Lonzo obviously is finishing up his fourth year uh, at from his when he got drafted, number two overall, right before Jason Tatum. Uh, <laughs> and... So what that means is New Orleans has full bird rights on him, right? So they can offer him any contract they want. And if you're restricted, that means they can also match 
any offer that someone makes for Lonzo. So if someone, uh, you might remember way back in the day, Gordon Hayward with Utah wanted a contract from Utah and they said, you go sign an offer sheet and we'll match whatever you get because they didn't want to negotiate with him. And he got an offer sheet from Charlotte, actually, you know, kind of weird now to think about. Uh, MJ's been pursuing him for like a decade, apparently. <laughs> and he went back to Utah and said, you know, they want to sign me for 20 million a year. Utah said, okay, we'll sign you for that. And they matched it and uh, he couldn't go anywhere to stay in Utah. So that's the kind of the power of the team with the restricted free agent. And it's to protect teams who draft players, right? To keep your guys around for a long time. Uh, so if you want to sign and trade, especially for restricted free agent, you've really got to entice the team who is signing and trading him. And uh, so two things complicate matters. One, if you receive a player in a sign and trade, it turns on the hard cap, our best friend. It turns on that tax apron, that $143 million. <laughs> So that's one downside. You lose okay. a lot of flexibility if you receive a guy in a sign and trade. If you send one out, you're fine. Does not trigger the hard cap. The other complicating factor is base year compensation, which is extremely complicated, but I'm just going to give you kind of the broad strokes. Effectively, in certain situations, if you're a restricted free agent, you're getting a big raise, and you're being signed and traded, how you calculate the salary going out is different than how you calculate the salary coming in. So essentially, if you're over the cap, you have to match salaries in a trade. And that's why we always hear about, well, we could trade for Beal because we have Horford's salary and Josh Richardson's salary, right? Mm -hmm. Us in Washington are over the cap. We match the contracts. We can execute that trade as over the cap teams. Problem with B problem in the very specific scenario like Lonzo is, is this bullshit thing called base year compensation. So for the team sending Lonzo, they actually calculate... I believe it's um, half of his new contract. So they would have to get back $10 million. And the other team accepting him, if they were over the cap, would have to send out 20. So they well, effectively would have to find a third team. So Lonzo signed for 20 million. My brain just melted. I know. It, so <laughs> I let, think I'm I'll hanging just, on by I'll a thread put, here. <laughs> yeah, I'll just put it. <laughs> let me just put it broadly. It's not easy to match because the number, the each team considers his salary at a different number, so I it's see. really difficult to match the value, right? Because you can't. Just so say, that's why we're hearing so many of these different trade scenarios where they're actively seeking out that third team. Because really, what that seems to be doing is smoothing the edges of where those numbers don't match the in and out way that that teams have to navigate the salary cap. Exactly. And okay. but why it was so, why it was so easy for the Bulls is because they were under the cap, so they could just take them into cap space. So right, they didn't gotcha. have to worry about matching salaries. Okay. Interesting. Uh, which is exactly what Oklahoma City did in that Kemba Horford swap that we executed this last year. Um, so OKC's an under-the-cap team. We're over the cap. So we had to match salaries. Mm -hmm. They didn't. Um, they didn't. Gotcha. So, yeah, so, so they what, had... Sorry, what's an example of what that trade would have looked like if the Celtics had pulled the trigger and traded for Lonzo Ball? Not worth it. <laughs> it it, <laughs> it would have been... <laughs> so incredibly complicated we would have had to get a third team involved and mm -hmm. we had so let's say his out say his number for us is 20 and his number for them is 10 we could have sent them a 10 million dollar player or around that number which we didn't even really have it's like basically marcus smart uh would be the only guy who fits that bill uh and then we'd have to find another team to send out 10 million dollars to uh, and give them a reason to do it, right? Because they're not just going to do us a favor so we can get Lonzo Ball. So that probably costs draft compensation. That'd probably be Tristan Thompson and draft compensation uh, just to get Lonzo and hard cap us because we're receiving him. So it just gets super tricky 
with the base year compensation. Again, very specific. Got to be right. a restricted free agent. Uh, Got to be getting a huge raise. And there's a couple other. Um, uh, there's a couple other. What is the word I'm looking for here? Things <laughs> that have to be met before the base year compensation rule comes into play. It's just very specific. Doesn't happen a lot. Uh, but it just imbalances the salaries for over the cap teams and makes it super complicated. Right. Okay. I feel like if this was a course that you took at college, like base year compensation is like the final year or the final semester of your final year, like before you graduate, it's like the most difficult possible concept to grasp in all of the CBA. Um, but definitely worth covering, covering. And I think you did a really good job of um, eloquently explaining it there. Uh, so we've covered we'll a lot. See. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what the people of Celtics Reddit and yeah, beyond right. have to say. Uh, we've covered a lot of really interesting points so far. I really like the way that you set it up like if there's three concepts that you want to grasp from the cba it's those three delimiting lines so the soft cap the tax line and the hard cap otherwise known as the apron um correct we we haven't really covered trades i know we covered sign and trades but there are a lot of sort of um uh there's a lot of fine print and a lot of more complicated subtopics when it comes to trades in the nba spoons where do you where do you want to start with that so um, I think I think the easiest thing to do is probably just walk through that Kemba and Al Horford trade we executed this offseason because it hits really all the big things that you can talk about with a trade other than sign and trades. Uh, really, so I I was sort of incorrect in saying that if you're under the cap, you don't have to match salary. That's true. But I think the best way to think about it is you're matching salary with your cap space. So we, in the Kemba Horford swap, I'm going to use round numbers here, we're sending out Al Horford to OKC, or rather Kemba to OKC. Kemba's making $35 million. Horford's making $25. So Oklahoma City has to make up that $10 million some way. And if you're both over the cap, that means they'd have to trade us... <laughs> talking with my hands here they'd have to trade us someone who makes 10 million dollars roughly uh, but since they're under the cap they can just say well we will make up that 10 million dollars difference with our cap room and just absorb the difference into our cap space and what that does is that creates a traded player exception so that's why we got a we got a very small tpe out of that swap like 7 million or something like that um, but like with Josh Richardson trade, we had a TPE, so we absorbed him into it. That created a $12 million TPE for the Mavericks. So TPEs are a way to make up or act as matching salary in a trade as well. Um, and then also in that Horford Kemba swap, uh, other than poor Moses Brown was a first round pick. And you had a lot of talk about, Oh, why did Stevens trade? This year's pick, right? It's the 16th pick. We probably won't have another pick that good. And the reason, uh, in two words, is the Stepien rule. And what the Stepien rule is, you cannot trade consecutive draft picks. Effectively, mm -hmm. you need to own a draft pick, a first-round pick, in every other year. Sure. So if you trade next year's draft pick after this draft, that means we can't trade a pick until 2023 and then 2025's pick. And that's mm -hmm. why you see all these every, like the Nets trade, it was every other year we get the pick. And then in the off years, we get a swap. That's so the Nets could avoid the Stepien rule and own at least some type of draft pick every other year. Oh, so that's why a lot of teams are doing that swap dynamic. I, I wasn't always savvy to that. So that swap is to sort of, that's the workaround. Uh, yep, exactly. Okay, for yeah. the Stepien rule. You can't just rule. have our pick, but we will swap it with you if ours is better than yours. Or, or Got vice it. Versa. So you're not necessarily, you know, getting rid of a pick in that particular year. You're just giving, you're ensuring that the most lucrative pick is going to the, the team on the receiving end. Exactly. Exactly. Still okay. trading value. 
Gotcha. Yeah. The the Stepien rule, the origins of, of which are very interesting. I believe it was Ted Stepien who was the GM or the Pobo for the Cavs for a little while. Yep. And there's a really good uh, explanation, like deep dive on that by a YouTube channel called Secret Base. I believe they used to be SB Nation. And I think it's like a two or three part series on the history of the Cavs. And unfortunately for the Cavs and their fans, so much of that is about Ted Stepien and how he like fucked their franchise for, for a very, very <laughs> long time. And they had to... Re- introduced this rule as part of the CBA called the Ted Stepien rule to prevent teams in the future um, repeating history in in Ted Stepien's case. So very much recommend uh, looking that up. But sorry, Spoons, I digress. No, no, that's a great point. Yeah, the the, real quick, Stepien was just famous for trading effectively every draft pick, usually for washed up white guys. So it did not go well for (laughs) Cleveland and and Ted Stepien. (laughs) (laughs) So... I feel like we're getting towards the end of this this podcast. We've, we've covered a lot of points. There's a lot to digest here. And I feel like for me personally, um, and Jay, let me know how you feel. You've helped me, Spoon, sort of develop a better understanding, a more well-rounded understanding of, of the salary cap, uh, the CBA rather. There are some concepts that we sort of inadvertently become familiar with, like the TPE, which is sort of plagued us for lack of a better term for the past 18 months as we've dealt with that's kind of been like our big um like wielding big swinging dick in, as far as like how we can play in the trade market um i don't know jay you got anything else you want to add to this i feel way more able to uh to to step in confidently to take my sats now at least the the math portion <laughs> of that um no you know i i do i i, I think it's it's helpful, especially for fans that that maybe don't find themselves as enthused with this aspect of the game. Um, you know, one of the things that might be worth just again, maybe just to throw out some of that terminology that sometimes goes out there that we might not always be familiar with. Spoons, help me out with uh, you know, and and actually, I'm I'm referencing one of our our users in the sub user Save Hogwarts, who doesn't really have a formal question, but I want to know. People always get hung up on that poison pill term. So, what is that poison pill? What are they talking about? So, uh, okay, the, this is another extremely complicated concept, uh, similar to base year compensation. So, there's actually kind of two types of poison pill contracts. I think one is with like a huge trade kicker or something. I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, the one that I've always heard refer to it as was famously uh, used by Miami to get Tyler Johnson. Uh, and so this is a very specific scenario where you've got a guy with one or two years experience coming off his rookie deal. Okay. And essentially... You don't have his bird rights, right? So if he's a, if he, you know, Hassan Whiteside, you remember when he was on a minimum contract and got four years, 80 million, you know? Yeah, he's I mean, he got off paid one, after like one year of being a, a borderline <laughs> all star. Right. So <laughs> if Miami, in under the old rules, if Miami didn't have cap space, they couldn't assign him, right? They don't have his bird rights. So there's nothing they can do. They, so they need to use cap space to sign him. So you almost get penalized for discovering these diamonds in the rough. And then these other teams can poach him from you who have cap space, right? The, the Oklahoma cities, the Knicks of the world. Okay. So what happened was the Ar- Gilbert Arenas provision was created, made famous by Agent Zero himself. He outplayed his... Uh, two-year minimum rookie second-year-round contract, and then the Warriors had no cap space, and Washington offered them him more than the minimum, which is all they could bring him back for, and he they got him, right? They got effectively an all-star player for for very low money just because the, the Warriors were in such a bad spot. So they created a rule, and that also created these things called poison pill contracts. So essentially, if you've got a restricted free agent, one or two years of service, no one can offer them more than the non-tax mid-level exception. So the big mid-level exception. So if we sign Yam Madar to a two-year rookie minimum and he's awesome and someone, the Knicks want to offer him a max contract... 
They cannot. Yeah, when, right. Yeah, it's just a matter of time, baby. They can't. They can't offer him that. They can right. only offer him that $9.5 million deal. And so we have our, ostensibly, we probably have our MLE, so we could use it to sign him. Or if it's two years, we'd have early bird rights, which I talked about before. So we could offer him the average NBA salary, which is $10 million, so a little bit more than the MLE, mm-hmm. so we could match. Um, but if you offer them more than two years, you can make the third and fourth year as much as you want, as long as you have cap space. Uh, okay. So you, so you could offer them $10 million, $10 million, 30 30 as long as you take the average, so the AAV would be twenty million. As long as you have twenty million dollars in cap space, you can offer that, and that's the poison and, pill. And that's twenty uh, okay. million the year that you sign them. You have to the have year that, that you sign them. Exactly. Exactly. So that's the so, wrinkle there. So like you could you, you you might only get counted for the ten on your cap for that year, but in order to actually make that deal and and put it in writing, you have to have that average salary able to be absorbed into your cap and and that's why it's called a poison pill because do you want to match tyler johnson making eight million eight million twenty five million a year in year three and then twenty seven million in year four Mm -hmm. of course not so that's why it's called the poison pill that's the poison pill you've got this huge you know aav or year to year, you get to choose if you want to have it count against your cap year to year, or you want to do the annu- average annual value. Either way, it's way too much for Tyler Johnson, yeah. but it's a way to pry young, talented players away from teams that found them. So that's what a poison pill contract is. Mm, okay. A couple of missed points to get to before we wrap up. Uh, we haven't covered buyouts, which I think uh, might pertain to the Celtics later this year, depending on what happens with, say, Al Horford. Um, explain, you know, I guess the pros and cons of a buyout for, for, for the Celtics, for example. Yeah. Um, so essentially a buyout, there's not a lot of pros other than you kind of are doing a guy a solid. Like it just happened with Kemba. Um, I think the big misnomer with buyouts is effectively you're just settling with a player to say, we'll release you if we only have to pay you this much of your contract, right? So if Kemba's making $30 million, they might buy him out for $25 million. They save $5 bucks. It does not affect, affect your cap sheet, though. Um, it does not affect it at all. You still have the cap hit of $30 million. So people are clowning the Celtics for Kemba getting bought, bought out by Oklahoma City. They mm-hmm. don't know what the hell they're talking about. They still eat that cap. We wanted the cap space. We don't give a crap about paying him money. So yeah. um, once a guy's bought out, they're a free agent. So we could effectively sign that free agent with any of the exceptions we might have available. Uh, so if we've got our BAE, if we got the Bay, and we don't mind being hard cap, we could go get you know someone who's been bought out with our bay. Bring on the bay, baby. Uh, can you <laughs> you can buy out and stretch salaries as well, though, right? So in the case of Horford, we could buy him out, stretch it, and have a, a reduced annual impact to the to our salary cap. Is that right? Yeah, so actually Horford's got a lot going on with his... um, So I'm going to pretend we pay him and he plays this year. So (laughs) next year, Horford has two things going on. One, he's got non-guaranteed money. So we could either straight up waive him or stretch him for half of his salary because half of it's non-guaranteed. If we keep him on the roster past a certain date, it becomes guaranteed and we are paying him the full $26 million. So a stretch is a way to reduce the cap hit of a contract. And I believe it's you add two years and then um, just divide it by that number. So we could effectively non-guarantee Al and stretch him. So we would have like $14 million spread over three years which I'm doing the math is like four and a half million dollars per year. Um, and so that's why we've got a lot of flexibility. Uh, word of the day <laughs> with that second year, that Horford contract, because it's all, all not only is it partially guaranteed, 
Uh, if we wanted to stretch, I mean, four and a half million is a pretty minuscule cap hit in this day and age. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but his his potential total salary there is also a key to potentially matching for a big name trade, right? So, like names that come up are are obviously the most prevalent one is Bradley Beal, and his salary is the next two years thirty four and a half, and then thirty seven the following season. So the only way that we're going to be able to comfortably trade for that kind of salary is likely to include Al Horford's contract and then some additional players and compensation on top of that. Unless we're talking about trading somebody like um, Jalen Brown in that no. deal, which right. We don't, and we don't have to unpack that necessarily. Like this isn't a pro or con <laughs> to trade, but when we're just looking at the numbers, if we yeah. want to keep that core together, the Jays together, especially Al Horford's contract then becomes essential for targeting that potential third star, even though he's already on the team. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I believe you are referring to one Marcus Smart there, Jay. Just to just to truly that would get that be out the, the smart open. assumption, Ben. That would be the smart assumption. <laughs> sure, it's, sure, it's not Aaron Neesmith. That's enough out of you. <laughs> Shout out to Little Reddit Thirteen and the Smart Hive. Um, the Hive is alive, my friend. <laughs> Look, uh, we're close to wrapping this one up, and if you're still listening, we've first of all we've mentioned trading Jalen Brown for the second consecutive podcast. We've hit you with an hour of uh, in-depth CBA discussion. So if you're still on props to you props to you for continuing to listen i'm um, sorry <laughs> but we do put a lot of effort into this and particularly spoons in this case has done a really good job of assembling all of these details and um and accepting us just peppering him with with probably very stupid questions uh, jay we do have one remaining reddit comment there it's a long one uh do you want to do you want to get to this one before we wrap it up sure um so this one is from so meta and it's yeah it's it's a little bit of a take here um looking for insight so i'm just gonna quote straight from the comment itself so user so meta it's my impression the cba seriously incentivizes players going all the way to free agency to maximize how much they can be paid instead of extending the year before for example Kyrie saying he wanted to re-sign with us at the beginning of the season but not actually doing so for financial reasons i guess my question is just who on earth thought this was a good idea it makes franchises trying to plan for the future super chaotic, at least before teams could read the writing on the wall and look to trade a guy who wouldn't extend. Now you have had so many players blindside their franchise like Durant leaving OKC or Hayward or Kyrie leaving us in the lurch. Why did it get put in this way? And is there talk of fixing it after the CBA expires in 23-24? Now that's a lot. Um, and I think it might be helpful if we even, you know, and, and so meta, please, my apologies if my reframe on this to try to consolidate it a little bit and expedite, uh, spoons ability to answer it, um, doesn't totally match what you were going for, but spoons, if you could just share a little bit about how the last CBA did kind of empower that player movement and do you, from what you understand of how this is, is going and what's currently in place with the, the collective bargaining agreement, do you see that changing in a way that better supports franchises keeping star players or increasing the level of uh, mobility that star players have in the league? So uh, I think that they're going to do something about the player movement. I don't really know what, whether that's counting a smaller percentage of Supermax contracts uh, or, you know, requiring players to notify the team a year ahead of time, whether they're willing to sign an extension. I, I don't know. I think there's a lot of creative ways they could fix it, but I do think they'll do something. What what he's kind of getting at, too, I think it's just kind of an accidental function of how they set up max contracts. So you're eligible for different percentages of the cap for a max based on your years of service. So there's this funky thing where you're usually a four-year rookie contract. Then you've got a five-year contract. That puts you at nine years. Well, if you have 10 years of service... You get more money. You get a much bigger uh, part of the cap. That's why you see these guys signing these like 
Kawhi and Paul George did these weird one plus one contracts where they had a player option. It's so when they signed their next contract, they were 10 years of service and got more money. Mm. Uh, and I, I don't, I just think that they were like, 10's a good number. That's even. And they didn't really think about like, well, we're heading in, you're going to have everybody expire at year nine and they're, and they're not going to be incentivized to sign a long-term contract with their team then. So it's a perfect time for these guys to say, I'll sign a one plus one with a new team and then I'll, uh, extend at that number. Uh, oh, I see what you're saying. So players I'll are coming again. in and their rookie contracts and then their first extension only gets them to about that nine-year mark. Exactly. But it's at that 10-year mark that they're actually they're they're able to get an even higher percentage of that cap for a max salary. So if you're a superstar player, right, it, it doesn't make any logical financial sense for you to sign that extension year nine when you know you're going to be eligible for a, a much more sizable percentage of that cap in year 10. So, right. Yeah. And I remember the, the last couple of years, we had a lot of those one-to-ones, and I thought mm-hmm. maybe that was just players posturing. But now that you've said it like that, I'm understanding the logistical reason why that was taking place. So what I think we'll see with Tatum, since he's got the four-year plus one extension, he will decline that option. We'll all be very scared. And then he'll <laughs> sign a two-year contract with a third-year player option is right. what, what I think he'll do. So that'll get him to 10. Unless the CBA is renegotiated between now and then, which I believe it's up for before he reaches that yep. point. Am I right there? And, you know, in terms of it all comes back to BRI and getting fans to spend more money and therefore generate more revenue and, you know, putting people like us as minds at ease and knowing, okay, we can emotionally invest in these players because the framework is such that they'll be around for a long time or at least be generously incentivized to do so um, might might lead to us avoiding hopefully that Tatum situation and having to read a shams thing jason tatum has opted out suddenly lakers fans are piling into the sub yes he's ours now we really need to avoid that situation at all costs it's probably the like the darkest three. timeline nah, yeah we, they can just keep resigning uh rajon rondo that's fine yeah yeah absolutely all right look that's going to do it for this one thanks for everyone who submitted questions we really love that community engagement side of things if you're listening and you have any thoughts or any follow-up questions drop them in either the youtube comments or the reddit post for this episode we'd love to read your thoughts huge huge thanks to wayne spoony who put a lot of effort into compiling all of the information just shared and for jay for threading in all the reddit comments into our run sheet guys love your work thanks again We'll be back a little later in the week with a very special guest. Until then, go Celtics. Peace.